doctrine of Christ and today's lesson we'll pick up where we left off now last week we finished off uh, looking at sin which was under the doctrine of man the part two of this theology series and then we just got into lesson 11 last week so I'll review um, somewhat briefly the parts that we already covered as we look at what does the Bible teach about Jesus and as you know we've reminded ourselves from time to time what we understand about God, what we understand about the Word of God, Christ, um, does have an impact on um, not only what we think, but how we behave. And so there's some very important truths we'll be looking at today. But um, you can see on uh, this second title slide, actually you can't see on the second title slide, but I'll just tell you, okay, so Lesson 11 Part two just means it's the second Sunday that I'm doing this, but there actually are two parts uh, to this lesson. Um, the person of Christ, it's, it's Christ is fully human, Christ is fully God. Those are um, how we can kind of uh, divide up today's lesson. So last week when we got into it, we started looking at Christ as fully human. Now, the very first one, um, point that we looked at last week, the virgin birth of Christ kind of fits in this but kind of not because um, the virgin birth has I mean it has to do with his conception yes and, and, um, but not, not so much with his humanity I guess maybe his sin nature lack thereof and um, his maybe his relationship or you know how he was conceived with his mom um, but we looked at this last week um, here's the deal Scripture clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. And so that uh, he does not have a human father. We looked at a number of verses last week kind of related along those lines. Um, some in Matthew and some in Luke. We also touched on some of the doctrinal importances. Shows that salvation ultimately, ultimately must come from the Lord. Uh, this was not a couple human parents that produced Christ, the Christ child. Although, in a sense, Christ produces every human. Or kind of a, allow myself to get off on this, but I, I've enjoyed this particular example over the years. Cause, um, it comes from a movie. Um, it's an old movie. Shenandoah, I think is the name of it. A Jimmy Stewart movie, if you happen to know who that is. Um, but it's an example in the in the movie of a man who is not a Christian, and he doesn't really give, you know, really respect God's provision. Like when we bow our heads and thank the Lord for food uh, before a meal, he does that in the movie out of honor to his dead wife, who was a devout Christian. He would pray before the meal, but not out of personal faith. And his his prayer was, you know, just. It, it's interesting because probably a lot of people think this way, but also I'll comment on it. Basically bowed his head and said, Lord, we thank you for the food that we're about to eat, even though we're the ones that actually planted it, we're the ones that did all the work of plowing the field, and, but nonetheless, we thank you anyways. Amen. And that was, <laughs> well, he, he, I mean, he might have done a lot of work, but who gave him the strength to work? He might have dug a hole, who gave him the strength to dig a hole. He might have put a seed in the ground, but who caused the seed to grow? Not him. Who created the seed in the first place? Not him. Um, 
he might have watered it, but where did he get the water from? He didn't make the water. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, it, there, there's a certain logic to it as far as it goes, albeit flawed logic that's not true, but it totally ignores a lot of parts of that. None, you know, it's, it's sort of like that with souls. Um, God uses um, the same analogy for witnessing, um, such as Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Um, so, anyways, um, yeah, God, God's behind the creation of every human. None of us make a baby happen. Um, and yet, Jesus, though, especially, we see directly provided by God because as the offspring of the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, doctrinally, uh, the importance of the virgin birth is that the salvation that comes through Jesus uh, came directly from the Lord. Um, also, the virgin birth made possible the uniting of all deity and full humanity in one person. Jesus is, again, fully human, uh, fully God. Uh, we'll look at that, both of those, in much more detail. And the virgin birth also makes possible Christ's true humanity without an inherited sin nature. And so... That's where we left off last week, and that's where we're going to pick up, continue, and so we're going to continue with the idea of Christ's humanity. And so we're going to look a little bit more at that, uh, kind of this last thought um, of Christ uh, not inheriting a sin nature uh, from Adam. Well, one verse that touches on this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. You're welcome to follow along, or you're welcome to just listen while I read. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die. And so we understand that from Scripture, that we have inherited our sin nature from Adam. Now, some might, well, actually, let me save that thought for just a moment. Let me read the second part of that verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. So we all are sinners through Adam, and we can all be made righteous through Christ. But how does this touch on not inheriting the sin nature uh, from Adam? Well, that's that's the likely inference here. Christ did not. You know, we, we all are sinners in Adam, but Christ is not the offspring of Adam. He's the offspring of God. Now, some have in this uh, perhaps theorized that, okay, the sin nature gets passed through the man um, as opposed to the mom. Um, perhaps, let me read a little bit along these lines. Um, this is from Grudem that we've been using as a, a major source for the material that I'm using in this study. He says this, Because the Spirit brought about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary... The child was to be called holy. Uh, that's, by the way, um, I didn't read that verse, but let me read that. Uh, Luke 1, verse 35. Uh, the angel answered and said unto her, speaking to Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. Okay, and so then um, that's partly the reference he said um, regarding Mary, Jesus in the womb, the child was to be called holy because of the spirit overshadowing her. Such a conclusion should not be taken to mean that the transmission of sin comes only through the Father for scripture nowhere makes such an assertion. I'll just pause there for a moment. But yeah, it doesn't clearly say that's the case. It doesn't clearly say that's not the case. 
who knows um, speculation you know I mean maybe you know sometimes there's speculation that could be right I kind of think that with the wise men how'd they know that special star meant the Christ child's born scriptures weren't that clear on that point one verse in the Old Testament talks about a star rising out of Jacob um, most people didn't understand that to be an actual star um, because then it talks about a scepter um, maybe you know, like a ruler rising up uh, but the wise men figured it out so okay it's not always wrong to speculate it is good to understand though when something is clearly stated by scripture as opposed to when something we are inferring it or drawing it from scripture that there's a little more possibility that we're we're part of the, the cause <laughs> that we're our, our own understandings influencing it okay, so um, I would not have inferred from the Old Testament that there would be a special star and I would have been wrong <laughs> that's not I have never had even people come up and call me a wise man uh, so uh, maybe that's why um, they were wiser than I well, anyways, I think Grudem's right that there's no direct thing in the, in the Bible that says that it's through the line of Adam. It could be. Anyways, I'll continue reading. It is enough for us merely to say that in this case, the unbroken line of descent from Adam was inter interrupted and Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So regardless of whether it's actually through the, the man instead of the woman, the point is it was broken, it was interrupted. He did not inherit a sin nature. Luke one thirty five connects the conception by the Holy Spirit with the holiness or moral purity of Christ. And reflection on that fact shows us, or allows us to understand that through the absence of a human father, Jesus was not fully descended from Adam and that this break in the line of descent was the method God used to bring about that Jesus was fully human yet did not share inherited sin from Adam. But why did Jesus not inherit the sin nature from Mary? Okay, we'll get to that question in a moment actually let me go back and just read Luke 135 again to see the connection between Jesus's moral purity and uh, his birth okay the angel said unto her the Holy Ghost shall come upon you the power of the highest shall overshadow you okay so that's what's going to happen you're gonna be born of the Holy Spirit therefore which is a connecting word because that's true that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and Jesus was the Son of God, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That holy thing. And so, um, Grudem is pointing out that connection. Now, what about this question? Why did Jesus not inherit the sin nature from Mary? We understand Mary's the mother of Jesus. Why, why not her? Was it because it was Adam? Well, the holy, or sorry, the holy, I skipped the wrong uh, one. The Roman Catholic Church answers this question by saying that Mary herself was free from sin. But scripture nowhere teaches this, and it would not really solve the problem anyway. Which is true. Now, let's see if we could figure it out. Where is he going with that? Okay, so let's just imagine for a moment, if that were true, that Mary herself was free of sin, thus the reason why he did not inherit a sin nature, because his own mom was free of sin, and then the Holy Spirit, of course, is free of sin, so he had no sin nature to inherit from either of them, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. 
But why would that not solve the problem? See if you can guess where he's going with that. I didn't even give myself a chance to guess because I was reading it. I read blah, 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 blah right into the answer before I even knew what was going on. And I'm not sure if I would have got the answer to it. Okay. Here's why it doesn't solve the problem. How was it that Mary didn't inherit sin nature? Okay. So, like, how would she be sinless? Uh, so it doesn't really, again, solve the problem, or as he puts it, um, would not really solve the problem any way. For why then did Mary not inherit sin from her mother? A better solution is to say that the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary must have prevented not only the transmission of sin from Joseph, Jesus had no human father, but also in a miraculous way the transmission of sin from Mary. Now, I'm not sure if I completely agree with that. Because I, I want to go back to what he, uh, Grudem said before, that the scriptures don't clearly say that the sin nature is passed down through Adam, but it doesn't clearly say it didn't. I think his point is the scriptures don't clearly say, but it does indicate that the line of transmission of sin nature to Jesus was broken. And uh, whether it's because it's passed down through Adam, and that's why it was broken, he had no human father, or whether the Holy Spirit in this process prevented it from passing from Mary, I don't know. Uh, but it's in some senses it's not vitally important that we know exactly how, as much as we know that Jesus was sinless. Okay. All right, so, of course, uh, some people have the thought that the virgin birth is impossible, but they have that same thought about a lot of miracles of the Bible. Uh, that's just kind of the thought of someone who has their own disbelief in, in God or disbelief in his abilities. There's a lot of things that, that don't make sense. How is it possible that Noah's flood happened? Now, could God have caused Noah's flood to happen through a lot of natural events such that we could try to theorize how that was possible? A lot of Christian creation scientists do spend time thinking about some of the statements of the Bible and looking at what we know about science and trying to see how some of those things could have an um, empirical... Um, that is, like something, something we can observe, explanation, okay? which uh, I think many of those, uh, in fact, I was just listening to one recently, um, mentions that they're, they're attempting to do that, but not because they discount miracles. Um, the fact is, the Bible doesn't say exactly what he did to cause Noah's flood to happen. Did it happen through a lot of natural means, you know, storms and stuff, or... They're trying to theorize like the fountains of the deep the Bible talks about how that could happen under normal conditions and you know like some sort of water something under the ground you know well even you know it, it could be interesting to see if we can come up with an explanation like that uh, but again I think many of the Christians that are doing that are not attempting to discount that it could have been just simply a miracle of course if it's simply a miracle there's no way of demonstrating through any kind of science theory how that happened because it's miraculous outside of the realm of natural science um, so I mean the fact is that something like the virgin birth does not make sense inside the realm of natural science a woman just doesn't spontaneously get pregnant um, or someone that doesn't believe that could happen doesn't believe that God created the whole world in the first place uh, and would not believe that you know something like Jesus walking on water. That doesn't make sense in the realm of natural science either. People don't just walk on water. You'd have to weigh a lot less, like you know the weight of a little water skeeter, you know, 
thing that's skipping along the water. Um, since pressure weighs a lot more than that, there's no way that that water tension film that happens is going to support the weight of a human, and you are going under. Um, so, anyways, yeah, I kind of discount uh, some of these thoughts that, that some people have where they just want to discount it uh, because they think that um, it's just not possible. All right, well, we won't spend more time on that, but yes. Well, he doesn't say that um, only through the man. Like, that, 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 well, that's what he's saying. Like, it, it does not, basically he's saying, the Bible doesn't clearly say that it's not passed through the mom. Like, it could be through Adam and Eve. Now, the Bible does focus more on Adam, than Adam we all sin. So it clearly is passed through Adam. He's just saying it doesn't clearly say that it could not have also been passed through Mary. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Uh, that's what, it's, good to have, it's good to have things like that clarified. Um, so, all right. Well, um, I'll move on a little bit in uh, Christ's humanity to a next thought. Uh, now, we get off the virgin birth now. In fact, let me put it up on my slide here. The, the second point. Um, if Christ was fully human, we expect him to have some things that remind us of what it's like to be human. And so that's what this next section is about. He had human weaknesses and he had human limitations. And uh, we read this in scripture. Um, so we're not just imagining he had these things, and you're probably already familiar with at least some, if not all of these. Um, for example, in Luke chapter 2, um, Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 In this passage, um, I think this is how Grudem words it, uh, Jesus was born just as all human babies are born. He grew through childhood to adulthood just as other children grow. Moreover, Luke tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so we have several verses from Luke chapter 2. Uh, the first one that Grudem uh, references is verse 7. And she brought forth a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. So he he had a human birth. Um, and then in verse 40, the child grew. Okay, so physical growth going on. He waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But I combined some of those thoughts, filled with wisdom. Um, and growing in verse 40 with what it says in verse 52 Jesus increased in wisdom that's an interesting statement we know that God is omniscient the Bible teaches that about God God has all knowledge how can you grow in knowledge if you already have all knowledge well just as Jesus emptied himself of certain aspects of deity he didn't cease to be God but he did give up some things that we would associated with God, and I think this is an example of them. Could Jesus learn? Now, could God learn? God can't learn. Jesus is God. Could Jesus learn? Apparently so. The Bible says he, he grew in wisdom, and he um, was uh, grew in verse 40, waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. Now, I don't know exactly how that works, um, 
don't fully understand that, you know, Jesus being fully human, fully God. Uh, in fact, I have some notes later on I'll, I'll come back to when I get to them. But we just sometimes have to be careful that um, human logic isn't what is demanded, that it makes sense to us at every point. So the fact is that this is the way it is. Jesus was able to be born. He was able to grow physically. He was able to grow in his wisdom. Um, verse 52 says wisdom and stature, so both physically and, and mentally. Um, God is all wise, and yet Jesus grew in wisdom. And uh, so here are some examples of human weaknesses that we see. Um, we won't read off all these verses, but I'll read references. The first reference is John 4, verse 6. We read about Jesus being tired. Okay, in John 19, verse 28, we read about Jesus being thirsty. In Matthew 4, verse 2, we read about Jesus being hungry. In Matthew 4, verse 11, we read about Jesus being physically weak. Now, I'll read that uh, verse. Then the devil leaves him. This is at the temptation of Christ. The devil leaves him. This is uh, Matthew 4, verse 11. And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Okay, why would they need to minister to him? Well, you know, of course, the word minister means to come and meet the needs of. Well, bare minimum, it shows he had needs to be meet. Uh, met physical needs. He came and ministered to them. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. Uh, but he, I think the implication there is that he was physically weak. Um, here's what Grudem says on that. Apparently, to care for him, speaking of the ministering of the angels, and provide nourishment until he regained enough strength to come out of the wilderness. Well, we, if, if anyone's in doubt that that verse talks about physical weakness, um, then Luke 23, verse 26, leaves no doubt that this is at his crucifixion when he is so beaten and whipped that he's too weak to carry the cross and someone has to carry it for him. And so he experienced physical weakness. And, and then uh, Grudem mentions this, the culmination of Jesus' limitations in terms of his human body is seen when he died on the cross, that his physical body actually was able to die. And that's the ultimate form of weakness of the body when it no longer can be alive. Uh, so then, um, now the Bible tells us Jesus also rose from the dead um, in a physical human body. And uh, we read about that in, for example, when Jesus invites Thomas, touch my hands, you know, the nail prints, touch my side. Well, he had a body that could be touched. Uh, Grudem comments on it this way. All these verses taken together show that, as far as Jesus' human body is concerned, it was like ours in every respect before his resurrection. And after his res resurrection, it was still a human body with flesh and bones, but made perfect. Now, it's something for us to look forward to as Christians because we know that someday we'll have a resurrection body, a new body. And so Jesus has that body. He goes on to say, the kind of body that we will have when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead as well. Jesus continues to exist in that human body in heaven as uh, the ascension is designed to teach. Of course, I think he's referencing, I didn't look up the verse, it's in uh, the beginning of Acts. You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Because Jesus just ascended. 
the same Jesus which was taken up from you into heaven okay, shall so come in like manner. And so then we're taught in other verses, the same Jesus that was taken up, we're going to be taken up. And so it's something for us to look forward to. But he had some human weaknesses. Let's see how I worded this on my slide. Yeah, his body was weak. What about his mind? The second point there, human mind. Uh, the fact that Jesus increased in wisdom says that he went through a learning process just as other children do. And so I kind of got ahead of myself, I suppose, and touched on this one already. And we looked at that. Um, so would Jesus have had to learn how to walk? I don't think that, you know, two-day-old baby was sprinting around inside. <laughs> you know, there, no, there's no reason to think that. Learning how to walk, learning how to talk, learning how to eat, all of those things. So his mind would have grown. Um, we also see the, that Jesus had a human mind when he speaks of the day on which he will return on earth. So this is actually Mark 13, verse 32. Uh, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So there's something there Jesus still is as limited on. He doesn't know that, or at least at the time of the writing of this, and probably... I would understand from Scripture, he still doesn't have that. It's something that God the Father is reserving for himself to know. And so then, um, our third one under here, human soul and emotions. There's a number of verses that relate to this. Uh, John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. John 13, 21, when Jesus had said, uh, thus said, he was troubled in the spirit. Luke twenty three forty six, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And a verse that I don't think I put down here is that um, when he um, cried out to God, he gave up the ghost. Which that could refer to simply dying, but I think separation. The Bible concept of death is a separation of soul from body. The concept of a second death is the separation from soul from God. Um, so, all right. Uh, then, um, human emotions are uh, kind of part of this. Um, in Matthew eight ten, he marveled. In John eleven thirty five, he wept with sorrow. In John five verse seven, he prayed with a full heart of emotion. Uh, the wording in, I don't know if I said the reference right. Hebrews five seven. Um, he prayed with loud cries and tears. So, of course, I think uh, God, to some extent, has some emotions as well. So, um, the Bible speaks of that. But it's definitely a human uh, characteristic. All right, so then I'll move to our next point on the slide, sinlessness. Um Let's touch on that a little bit more with some verses here. <clears throat> Let me, uh, I'm trying to see if I wanted to read something out of order. Okay, there's where I put it. Okay, I have a, a page coming up in a little bit. Could Jesus have sinned? Okay, so I was looking for certain thought related to this, but it's in a moment. Is it, was it possible for Jesus to sin? Ah, let's table that for a second. Let's just come back and look at some th things the scripture says about his sinlessness. Hebrews 
We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, which is a double negative, which in English is a no-no grammatically, but in some languages it's not a no-no. So here it's a double negative. We don't have that kind of high priest who cannot be touched that way, which means we do have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus cares. He feels pain. Uh, that's why Jesus wept when Lazarus died in the sadness of the people. I think he was more weeping for how their hearts were broken over the death of Lazarus because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. No problem. I'm raising him from the dead. But still he wept because he cared. We don't have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15 tells us. He also tells us in John 15.10, I have kept my Father's commandments. I mean, how many of us can say that? I've kept them all. Another spot, he says, I always do the will of my Father. And we don't always do the will of God the Father. We don't always obey him in every commandment. And yet Christ uh, did that. So he's referred to in a number of passages, um, especially I have uh, five of them out of the book of Acts, as the Holy One or the Righteous One. So scriptures assert that in his temptations, Jesus did not sin, and that he was free from sin in any moral defect. And so this is the assertion of scripture. Now, um, this is important, uh, because he needs to be the sinless lamb of God to take our place on the cross. All right, so, let's see. Here's one uh, wording of one verse. This is uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and 22. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And that is one of the great things that comes from it. Christ is an example to us. We want to know how we should be and how we should behave. Uh, We can follow the example of Christ because there's nothing in his example that's uh, bad. All right, I'll read one uh, thought from Grudem before we move on. It's more details on the, uh, the nature of his temptation in the wilderness that kind of help us transition into that question I previewed. Was it possible for him to sin? Okay, but here's uh, what Grudem says on this. Uh, in many respects, that this temptation was parallel to the testing that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden, but it was much more difficult. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God and with each other and had an abundance of all kinds of food for they were only told not to eat from one tree. By contrast, Jesus had no human fellowship and food to eat and after he had fasted for 40 days, he was near the point of physical death, yet he had come to obey God perfectly in our place and to do so as a man This meant that he had to obey in his human strength alone. If he had called upon his divine powers to make the temptation easier for himself, then he would not have obeyed God fully as a man. The temptation was to use his divine power to cheat a bit on the requirements and make obedience somewhat easier. But Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, refused to eat what appeared to be good and necessary for him, choosing rather to obey the command of his heavenly Father, of course, Adam and Eve had no sin nature. And so that's, you know, having a sin nature isn't what caused them to disobey. But it's interesting thoughts there, and it highlights this, that God, or Jesus is, when he died on the cross, he died in our place. He's our 
representative. So yes, he's God in the flesh, but he died as a human representing humanity. Okay. Now feel free to interrupt me if you've got any thoughts on that um, or questions. So continuing on to this question, could Jesus have sinned? Or it could be worded, was it possible for Christ to have sinned? Grudem points this out. Some people argue for the impeccability of Christ. Impeccable or not not able to sin. Actually, I think he says that in a moment. It, um, in which the word impeccable means not able to sin. Others object that if Jesus were not able to sin, his temptations could not have been real. For how can a temptation be real if the person being tempted to sin is not able to sin anyway? In order to answer this question, we must, must distinguish what Scripture clearly affirms on the one hand, and on the other hand, what is more in the nature of possible inference on our part. So several of these things seem to come back to that, that there's things that aren't clearly said, and we've got to be careful about whatever logic might want to bring us to. Um, so let's start with that first part. What do the Scriptures clearly tell us? Well, one is that scripture clearly affirms that Christ never actually sinned. So we know that much. He was completely sinless. Um, Hebrews 4.15 is a good verse on that. Um, he it speaks of Christ, that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So scripture clearly asserts that. Okay? Now, James 1.13 uh, speaking of God, says God cannot be tempted with evil. Uh, my understanding from that and just generally the character of God is just completely inconsistent with the character of God to be tempted to do evil. I mean, it's totally repulsive to him, totally out of his character. It, it's not going to even be in his presence. Um, so, now Grudem is being careful here and he's saying, well, let's just take a look at what clearly, you know, Scripture clearly teaches two things that we just looked at three things actually Jesus never sinned oh I skipped one of them, my bad I wonder I don't remember three of them the second one that I skipped it, the scripture clearly affirms that Jesus was tempted and that these were real temptations, that's in Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Christ, so Jesus never sinned, he was actually tempted and God cannot be tempted with evil. Okay? So scripture clearly says those things. But Grudem then says this, but here the question becomes difficult. If Jesus was fully God as well as fully man, then must we not also affirm that in some cases Jesus also could not be tempted with evil? This is as far as we can go in terms of clear and explicit affirmations of scripture. At this point, we are faced with a dilemma similar to a number of other doctrinal dilemmas where Scripture seems to be teaching things that are, if not directly contradictory, at least very difficult to combine together in our understanding. So a lot of times when I approach these, and Trinity comes to mind as another one, that you know, humans just don't always get everything. We don't, either our brains are too puny, too weak, or the information we have is too limited. 
um, but we can't always get everything. Um, you know, logic, of course, refers to thinking through information and reasonably understanding it and coming to some sort of a conclusion about it or a more formal definition. Uh, logic is reasoning conducted or assessed according to strict principles of validity. That's the Oxford Dictionary. Of course, if you define a word with a word, other words, you got to know what those other words means. Use the word validity. Well, what's that mean? Uh, quality of being logical. Okay. You're not supposed to do that with dictionaries. Oxford Dictionary, you define one word with another, but then to define that other word, you define it with this word. So, okay, I thought that was kind of funny. Anyways, they, they do say logical or factually sound, and the, um, soundness or cogency, or clearness of thinking. So, then uh, I look up soundness, since it, it okay, so it, it used validity, defined it with logic, which... I was looking up validity because logic's defined with validity. Oh, okay, now, in other words, soundness. The quality of being based on valid reason or good judgment. Okay? And so things can be logical, but of course, logic, I love teaching logic, and when I teach high school geometry class, we get into logic a lot. I, I like it, it's, it's just kind of fun. But um, you can be totally logical and totally wrong. Because um, if, if the premises upon which you base your logic happen to be false, you can be completely logically say, well, I think this is true and this is true, and now I will logically reason to the conclusion based on those. So, for example, in the creation-evolution debate, there's a lot of very logical people that are evolutionists and very logical people who are creationists. They start with completely different foundations. They logically, and, and you can see the logic. It's um, The logic, you know, obviously it's Conservative Christians that are creationists, we say, okay, we disagree with your conclusions because we disagree with your premises. You know, premises such as there's no God and there was no creation, so everything had to happen by natural means. So therefore, they logically try to imagine how that could happen. They arrive at conclusions that make sense. If you reject a God, if you reject the possibility of creation, if you uh, accept um, uniformity, uniformitarianism, if you accept evolution, well, then we're going we're gonna to figure out how all this happened. And so, well, we got to be careful with the scriptures um, on some of these things as well. Um, I can just give some of my suspicions. Uh, it's, it's out of character with God to be tempted. I just I have a hard time imagining Jesus was actually tempted, um, as in there was any leaning on his part to do evil. Um, but I, I don't think to eat would have been you know, evil. Like he was being tempted, make some bread out of the stones. Uh, to not honor God in that moment would have been evil. Uh, God did not desire him at that moment to make the bread that way. And so, anyways, well, that's as far as I can go. You want to go any further? You got any questions? You got any comments? All right. So, why then was Jesus' full humanity necessary? And so, the first point on here, I think I just have them all showing you. So, it's the significance of it. Okay, the first significance is the representative obedience that I already talked about. Uh, Romans 5.18 uh, Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, uh, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, 
even so by the righteousness of one, Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Justification, being made found to be right. Um, right in the sight of God. Okay, so we have a chance of being declared righteous by God and having our sins forgiven because of Jesus. Uh, it goes on to say in verse 19, Romans 5:19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Of course, that's probably one of the verses you're thinking of. The Bible clearly says we got our sin nature from Adam. That's the question about, we also get it from Eve or through the mother. But anyways, okay, so our second point up there, substitute uh, sacrifice. So again, we're going back to why was his humanity necessary? One, that he's a representative of humans. He yeah, the perfect human dying on behalf of the human race. Okay, secondly, he was our substitute, which closely relates to it, I suppose. Um, Grudem commenting on Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 says, The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not concerned with angels, um, with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of uh, the people. Of course, sometimes I have to remind myself of propitiation. I think I've kindly got it down in my head so I don't forget the word. And I got it down in my head because I'm associating it with a picture which is actually the picture in Scripture. And that's the mercy seat. It, the propitiate, it's the place where the blood was sprinkled and atonement of sins happened. Um, that's the propitiation, or another word, expiation. Um, so he's able to make propitiation for the sins of the people, um, having them forgiven um, by God. Jesus had to become a man, not an angel, because God was concerned with saving men, not with saving angels. But to do this, he had to be made like us in every way so that he might become the propitiation for us, the sacrifice that is an acceptable substitute uh, for us. By the way, I I haven't gone back and looked this up. I believe the word propitiation directly ties with or or is some way directly by Scripture associated with that mercy seat. So maybe that will help you too. It, It helps me. Um, I keep propitiation straight when I come across in the Bible because I think my brain goes straight to the mercy seat, reminding me what it's about. Okay, uh, mediator. Uh, It's important because Jesus is our mediator. Um, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men. Thus we have a mediator that's fully God, fully man, and is able to do that. Okay, then um, his full humanity... Fulfills God's original um, purpose. All right, um, let's see how I word up here. Uh, yeah, now I think I think I got this correct. Last week, if I got this far, I left off half of this on the slide, and I corrected it before Sunday school. But the people online were going to be missing half of it. But we got it corrected for this week, so online won't miss this point. Uh, God put mankind on the earth to subdue it and rule over it, we read in the book of Genesis. And so by becoming fully man, he could fully do this. Uh, Man did not fulfill that purpose, for instead fell into sin. 
The author of Hebrews realizes that God intended everything to be in subjection um, under mankind. And this is what Hebrews says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Hebrews 2 verse 8. So Grudem goes on to say, Then when Jesus became as a man... He was able to, to obey God and thereby have the right to rule over creation as a man, thus fulfilling God's original purpose in putting man on the earth. Hebrews recognizes this when it says that now we see Jesus in the place of authority over the universe, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus um, has been given all authority in heaven and earth. That's Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. And put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1.22 So then also his humanity was necessary for our next point. To be our example and pattern in life. 1 John 2.6 He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. And so he gave him as a pattern. Walk as he walked. And then to sympathize as a high priest, which we already looked at that verse a little bit ago, he's able to sympathize with our infirmities. And so it's great when we look at back of all these things, there's a lot of significance to the humanity of Christ, but um, I think the most important one is representative obedience and substitute sacrifice. When he died on the cross, he was the perfect lamb of God, and therefore he could be that perfect sacrifice. Now, it seems to me that that's probably a, a good stopping point given the time there. Um, so I'll hold off on the next slide, uh, the deity of Christ. We're going to take a look at that next week, but I'll give you a little preview of that. Uh, the deity of Christ, we'll look at um, some words used for Christ in the Bible. The word for God, theos, used of Christ. The word kyrios, which is uh, translated Lord. Um, used of Christ in several spots and the way it's used indicating deity and then other names for Christ um, names like I am or the word and then also looking at Christ possessing attributes of deity um, things he did that were not human I mean he, he's fully human but things he did that were outside of what simply a human could have done and so we'll look at those next week as we look at the deity of Christ um, under our current lesson, um, which is the person of Christ. Okay, any closing thoughts or questions this morning? Great pearls of wisdom on your part. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and...